This is Infidel One. Offending Coyote Down. Offending Coyote Down. Roger that. Welcome to Trappin' Radio. We're proud, organic, free-range, wild fur farmers of North America. Let me tell you a little story about how I was raised. Every day work, every day pray. God, family, friends, yeah, everybody sins. A winner never quits, and a quitter never wins. Help folks in need, don't fall for greed. A jealous man is weak, so think before you speak. If you love them, let them know. If you hate, let it go. Fast can be fun, but sometimes you need slow. God is all good, the devil is so real. So listen up, y'all, because this is how I feel. I won't back up, I don't back down I've been raised up to stand my ground Take my job, but not my guns Tax my check till I ain't got none Except for the good Lord of above I answer to no one Now let's cover our sponsors. They do a lot to help support Trapping Radio. So I'm asking you guys out there and gals, to help support our sponsors as they keep trapping radio on the air. First sponsors, Oki Cable and Trap Supply. Jeb's the owner of this. He's out of Oklahoma, super guy. You'll not meet anybody nicer. It's somebody you're gonna wanna deal with. You can reach him at OKTrapSupply.com. You can give Jeb a call at 918-429-4648. Not only does he do trap supply guys, he's a fur buyer, so if you're around the Oklahoma or surrounding states, give him a call with your fur. When you need stuff, give him a call and he'll get it out to you as soon as he can. Our second sponsor is F&T Fur Harvesters Trading Post. Everything you need for trapping, hunting with hounds, and predator calling. Guys, if you're into trapping fur, hunting fur, chasing fur with dogs, you're not gonna be able to think of hardly anything that you can't get from F&T. You can reach them at fntpost.com. You can also give them a call at 989-727-8727. Whatever you want, F&T's got it. Blue Ridge Outdoor Supplies. Scott Payne is the owner of this business. He's in Elton, Virginia. He also has a lure line, Mountain Rebel Lures and Baits. He's got a great coyote trapping video. He's also a fur buyer in Virginia. Anything that you're looking for and your trapping needs, give Scott a call and he'll get it right out to you. Wildlife Control Supplies, proven solutions for wildlife control, delivering value, expertise, and products to the wildlife individual. If you're in the ADC business, control business, even fur trapping, you need to look at these guys' website. Top-notch company, have everything you would want, even the odd stuff that ADC guys are looking for. You can reach them at wildlifecontrolsupplies.com. You can give them a call at 877-684-7262. International number is 860-844-0101. If you're a wildlife control professional, you need to have wildlife control supplies as one of your favorites on your computer or your phone because when you come across something that you need specialized equipment, Alan will get it right out to you. Now let's go trapping. See, I'm a flag flying, Bible toting son of a gun. Yeah, I'm hell on the heart. 
one just a rebel on the run scared don't know it fear don't feel it the truth is the light sometimes you gotta fight good beats bad right beats wrong i'm a ballroom preacher and this is my song i'm climbing for the top representing for the country i'm the people's champ right out to dear camp shotgun toter republican voter hank jr supporter let's protect our border to hell with anyone who don't believe in the usa because this is what i say i won't back up i don't back down i've been raised up to stand my ground take my job but not my Well, hello guys. It's a hot, muggy southern day as I'm doing this. You'll hear me slugging on some Gatorade. You thought this? It, I'm amazed. I'm truly amazed how things just get busier and busier and busier. Um, you know, I'm answering about 60 emails a day. I'm still way behind, weeks behind, on, on getting all the emails, but. Uh, you know, all this stuff that's supposed to make our, our life easier, it seems to turn into a, a hindrance. At least it, you know, if it's used on a mass scale the way that it's supposed to be. And then, you know, Facebook and everything else and other websites. And, you know, I'm trying to schedule all that stuff in. Plus, it's springtime, so I'm out there, you know, planting in the garden and getting stuff squared away. So, you know, I've got plenty of good, nutritious stuff to eat and, you know... Then, then this week, we, me and my wife, uh, I guess it was last week actually, we, we have new, seven new family members that we call the girls, which uh, I've never really raised chickens. We had them when I was a kid. They were an enclosed pen completely, and uh, they were like little banny things, more for 4-H projects for my little brothers. And I remember the eggs, but not that much, and we didn't really do that much with them. So... Uh, Anyway, I went up to Val's, which is a, a trapping student of mine. She owns a, a, an organic farm up in Ohio. And uh, I came back with seven laying hens that uh, I plan on using for a soil manufacturing plant. That's, that's what I got them for, and the eggs are kind of a bonus. But, you know, learning how to do that and getting the water right and, and all the stuff that seems really easy, you know, after a while you realize there's a lot more to everything than you really realize. Now I want to do a show today that's going to be broke up into some some small parts. I want to talk about a couple of questions that I've gotten on trapping. I want to uh, talk a little bit about when you're dealing with antis and then I want to go into uh, a mink trapping just a little bit of some of the stuff that I've learned and some of the stuff that I see at least around here and where you know kind of some of the ways that I've been picking up some mink and different things like that and because uh, mink mink are still doing pretty good in the fur market I mean comparable you know more than a coon and um, I think mink and muskrats and the coyotes and cats otter they went way down but I don't think they're gonna stay there that long the only thing I'm not really sure about next year from from really talking around from different sources and stuff on fur is coon and beaver uh, not sure how that's going to go. Uh, I think a lot of that's going to rebound a little bit quicker than we think. I don't know what's going on, you know. And, and part of what you have to understand about some of the big auctions, if you're dealing with them, if you send your stuff up there, th there's a lot of guys that don't use fur, but they buy fur and they treat it like a commodity. Then NAFTA and, and fur harvesters store it for them. So they put them 
in the back and they pay a fee so on our sales it's showing it's sold even though it's not really sold because it's not going into the market it's just going back into storage then somewhere down the road these boys are bringing them out and putting them back on the market so if a lot of that happened this year because of lower prices and speculation like it would on anything else uh, the, the coon and the beaver may be a little sketchy for a couple of years but you can't ever tell I mean the only thing I know for sure is if you ain't got them you can't sell them and you sure as crap don't know what the fur market's gonna do so my only advice is just trap like it's all worth money because it is and you figure out the best way it is to sell it but one of the questions and I get this a lot and I want to discuss it just a little bit so it's out in the open a little bit more is on my cat collector uh, DVD uh, I'm showing set so if you've seen the, the DVD before you've heard about it you're gonna kinda understand my style of bobcat trapping and I'm using a uh, very specific uh, set of rules that I go by you know it's like a that, that's the closest thing to an ABCDE formula that, of, of trapping because it controls everything about the bobcat it gets them to point A to get them all the way through the end of the the uh, the formula to where they're standing in a trap and it's a really big control issue when it comes to cats just because they're so sporadic but one of the things that I'm doing in that video is I'm using a drag the video was shot in South Texas most of it was I'm using a drag if I'm using a CDR I just use one trap if I'm using smaller traps like threes or fours I will use two traps and the reason I'm doing that is just you know when a bobcat I mean, even the way the, the fur market went this year, I mean, $95 is what we got for the cat. So that's not bad money for a bobcat. You know, I don't care who you are. And everybody wants $600. But, I mean, realistic, year after year, those cats are right around $100 mark. $100 bill every time you pull up to a cat's a pretty good day, in my opinion. So I don't want to miss any. And when I went to single traps on using small traps like threes and some some of the fours without the big pans and stuff like that I was seeing misses and I don't like misses so what I my you know my simplified caveman brain basically said well if I'm having misses let's up the percentage a little bit even if it's by I don't think it's a true 50 percent but let's say it's 20 30 or 40 percent so we add that second trap we give them a bigger kill area with those two traps and they and they you know you get caught now that's not where the questions coming from the questions coming from well if you're if you have if you do have and you will have multiple cats sometimes come to a set especially during the rut how come I don't use a single trap in a drag and then another single trap in a drag you know put the drags off in different directions I've had guys talk about using slide poles and and uh, like on the ground uh, drowning rigs with cable and stuff like that so you can double up on your cats and and I don't think anything is wrong with that whatsoever but the reason you see me in the video using one drag one chain and two traps is because majority of that trapping is done a thousand miles away from home guys so if you think about it, say if I'm running 100 to 150 traps, let's do 100 traps just for sim or 100, 100 sets. So let's keep the numbers simple so I don't have to break out the calculator. 
if I add a, a second trap with its own drag and its own chain, that means now I've got to have 100 extra drags. Now I've got those drags because I use them on my DP, so that's not an issue. And they've already got chain on them. I'd have to extend them out a little bit more than I'm using on my Freedom Brand Dog Proof Traps, but no big deal. So I'd add another four foot of chain to them. But the logistics part that, that comes in play on this is what the big deal is. So when I load up and go to Texas, and I've got a hundred drags and a thousand feet of chain and a hundred traps and a lot of them are CDRs or big number fours and stuff like that the weight of that is tremendous because the drags like two and a half pounds that's 200 pounds 300 pounds of drags and you've got a thousand foot of chain with swivels I've never added all that up but it's it's pretty heavy then you got a, a CDR trap that that's probably three four pounds I guess you know it's a big trap big heavy base plate big heavy jaws so every one of those units is probably realistically in that five to seven pound range so times a hundred say it's six that's six hundred pounds of just pure traps and if I double that I'm up to twelve hundred pounds of just per traps but I'm also carrying cage traps and, and lure and bait especially when I'm running the school which I'm not doing next year so keep that in mind but and then you know then we've got the snares and the snare supports and and the stretchers and so the reason you see me in that video not using a trap a, a, a chain and a drag per set it's logistical reasons it's it's purely a weight thing it doesn't make sense now when I'm around here or I'm somewhere if I'm doing a control job and it's a say an 1800 acre piece of property somewhere oh yeah I mean the weight's the same with me to go to say North Carolina as it is for me to go to Texas but on 1800 acres I'm not going to be running 100 to 150 quote true cat sets there's just not enough area and there's not enough cats to warrant that when we're down in Texas we can be on 20 to 50,000 acres that's you know and it's all behind locked gates and there's not a lot of time messing around with opening gates and we're not spending time on the road and all that good nonsense so we can get a lot of traps out and we're checking traps within usually you know three minutes of leaving the camp in the morning so you know that's the reason we can run so much equipment like that down there and when I go when I'm back east realistically in the real world I don't really think you're gonna have a hundred to hundred and fifty cat traps out because you don't have a continuous block of land and you're not having to worry about hunters and trap thieves and and everything else like that because if you do have a continuous block of land that big it's a national forest and you got to really pay attention a lot of the cat habitat is not going to be exactly right on the road like we have in South Texas so you got to keep all that in mind so if you're running you know if you, you run a good honest 30 to 40 cat sets in the east or midwest and they're on really good locations with good cat sign and good crossings where cats females and males are going to be crossing you're going to be staying pretty busy you know you're going to because you're still going to have the possums and the skunks and the coons and all this other stuff that that we don't have to deal with as much on a big basis like you do in um when I get back up here in the east we just don't have as much of the other stuff to deal with so that allows me to run less traps here but still have pretty good production on the ground that I'm running 
So if you're running 30 or 40 sets or 10 sets or whatever it is, because a lot of guys do a lot of walking, especially on uh, national forest and public grounds to get away from people, you may be only running 10, 15 really good cat sets. And you can still do very well on cats on really good locations in those areas. And if that's what you're doing, by all means, set it up for a double. But don't get so focused on that double trying to get a double out of set unless it's for an internal goal you have or you just want to have the picture for Facebook or whatever it is the percentage of that happening is not that high because if you were to run 40 sets and you were to run the separate drags and traps would you catch an extra maybe four or five cats possibly but all that extra work and carrying, and especially if you're walking, you got to take all that into consideration, you know. Um, and and I, I still believe the best way to to go, just like I talked about on the the the, the coyotes, I'd rather have one piece of equipment on every single location that I can that I can come across that's got a good chance of success. And I do that same thing on the bobcats. So that's the reason on the cat collector DVD, you don't see me setting up for doubles. But it's not because it's not a practical thing to do or it's not that I don't ever do that. It's just in that particular instance because when you watch a DVD, it's in a certain area that's got certain limitations and, and certain parts about it are, are going to be in that video. And if you try to force something in a situation like me driving a thousand miles to go set a cat trap, when you can go do it out of your back door on your own farm, you're, you're trying to put two and two things together that don't mix, kind of like water and oil. So you got to know where those two things come together for your own trap line. So just because you see me or anybody else do something on a video and it makes sense to do something a little bit different, go ahead and do it. You may find out there's a reason that we've learned the reason we're not doing it. Or you may find out that there may be a reason we're not doing it and we wish we could do it, i.e. using two traps and two drags. But I get that question a lot, especially on emails. I think I had like four of them this week. So I thought I'd go ahead and put it out and, and it kind of explain that. So if anybody, you know, you hear somebody talking about it, that way you can, you know, kind of uh, tell them what my thought process is for me and I'd appreciate. Now last week, before I go on to this next part, um, I didn't realize that I couldn't do the show when I went to do the show. And, and what I mean by that, guys, is we have to have our own server. We have a dedicated server that does nothing but Trapping Radio and Wolf Nation. And the reason for that is the volume when you do something like Trapping Radio, even though Wolf Nation gets way more unique visitors than trapping radio does on a mass scale, not hits, but unique visitors. Every time you listen to the show, you've got information flowing on the internet. And it's not like a, a forum post, it's, it's, a, it's a file, it's a whole file. It, most of them are about 70 megabytes. If not in the computers, don't worry about it. But that, that's, a, that's a pretty good sized file. I mean, it's an hour long song that you're transferring. And then people are downloading them uh, they're they're downloading the computer. They're putting on CDs. So they can listen to them in their car. They're putting them on uh, iPads and uh, MP3 players and all this stuff. So when these shows are coming out, there's so much volume of information going back and forth 
a normal server that a normal website has, like our howtotrapcoyotes.com, they're not even in the same boat as far as the information. But what happened to me last week is they were doing maintenance and they do this twice a year, apparently. And they take the server down for like three days. And they go in and they do whatever they do and I don't know if it's for security reasons or what they're doing. But when they do that, I can't put anything up on the server because they've got that blocked. And I didn't know that, so that's the reason I wasn't a show last week. And, and I apologize for that, but that's just the way that it, that it kind of works out sometimes. And there's nothing that I can do about it. So that's the reason we didn't have a show. But uh, hopefully you'll find something today that will kind of make up for that. Now, what I want to talk about when it comes to antis is um, you, you, have, you have to understand who you're dealing with. I really believe that the reason there's so much of the, the cussing and screaming and, and mother calling and, and everything else that you see online is you got two separate groups of thought process that are never, ever going to come together. They think that trappers love abusing animals, hurting animals. They think we get our jollies off on it. They see it as the same as child molestation or anything else. That is the view that they have of trappers, hunters, fishermen, and different things like that. In case in point, I've got a video on my Facebook page that that I shot down in Texas. We're, we're shooting a trapping TV show and, and that and you'll see the whole footage probably coming up here in another couple of weeks on trapping TV and we're down in Texas and we're shooting and we caught a monster Tom. I bet I bet that son of a gun had to weigh about 35, 38, maybe 40 pounds. I'm not sure he's quite that big. He's caught in a portable pocket, number three bridger, four foot of chain the way that I was doing that a lot this year and uh, I mean he was randy he was wired up he was not happy I don't know if uh, you know a tractor or something drove by him 10 minutes before we did but when we showed up he was ready to take on the world and and we did our filming for the trapping TV and I, then I pulled out the camera and I shot some more detailed stuff because I'm doing a portable pocket DVD they'll be coming out sometime and then I just took out the phone because he was so vocal and the growling and the deepness and everything like that. I mean, it's it's something else. I mean, it really is. If you wanted to scare a group of people to death camping, take the audio off that and play it on a loudspeaker in a campground. You'll see half of them leave. I mean, the cat was was talking. So I post that and I don't know what I said. Something about a uh, cat not happy to see me, yada, yada, yada. And, you know, people saying good video, love cat trapping, different things. And there was a guy on there, and I get so many friend requests that a lot of times if, if I'm gone for four or five days, I just accept them all. Well, one of them was a, a, an environmental extremist. And he was talking about, and I didn't know that he was, that he asked to be my friend. So he said, if you're going to harass the animals, don't put it on Facebook. And at first, I thought it was a trapper. And all we did was walk up and film the thing. You know, we weren't poking it with sticks and or whatever they think in their mind that we're doing. I wasn't doing that. The cat was just fired up, so we filmed it. 
So I put down there, harassed, are you nuts? Then I went to the guy's page, huge animal rights activist. He's got all these pictures of uh, Fox and saying they're helpless and we got to do something about it and this, that, and the other. And <coughs> you could tell that he's so removed from the natural world that he kind of sees everything in nature as like a pet or a zoo. Now, a trapper doesn't see it that way. I, I, when I talk about being an organic, free-range, wild fur farmer, that's exactly how I look at it. You know, and it's, and it's just like a good farmer, they give their animals the best life they can give them, and then they have a great life, then they have one bad day when they're harvested. And that's the way that I look at trapping. That's, you know, it's, it's kind of a neat farming system. We don't have to feed them, we don't have to house them, we don't have to breed them, we don't have to do anything with them. We can go out and we can manage our trap lines to produce more and more animals over a long period of time and how to not have to put all these inputs into it so to me it just makes perfect sense because he, you let him have a natural life doing whatever he wants to do and then he's got really eight hours of, of uh, a bad time and then a really quick dispatch and he's over with now the difference between an extremist and a difference between a trapper or a realist, in my opinion, is you can look at things objectively. You can look at things um, from a point of view where you, you bring in reality instead of just pure emotion. Because that's normally what you're dealing with is you have a, a trapper talking in logic, then you have a anti-guy talking in pure emotion because he's literally looking at you like a child molester. And the animals that you're doing, you're just like, you know, beating them with a stick or whatever he thinks it is you're doing, which is nonsense. But in his mind, that's reality because he's never, ever come in contact with wildlife except from a distance. It's just like watching a movie to him. Isn't that pretty? Well, they are pretty. And it's also a great national uh, a resource. But for him to put an animal in the same category of a resource you're talking two totally different worlds that aren't going to meet. And, and my best opinion when you deal with these people is just don't deal with them. When you're dealing with an honest-to-goodness radical environmental extremist, you're not going to talk sense to them because it's automatically going to go into name-calling and everybody's going to get upset really quick because as soon as you bring out logic, it goes against his narrative and there's no way that he's going to let his narrative lose. So then it goes into third grade you know you're fat ugly or whatever so you don't want to go there but what but what amazed me from the comment on the Facebook is you could tell that guy literally thought that if I wouldn't have trapped that bobcat he would have had just this awesome life and then what but see there because there's no objective thinking when you're talking with a radical person no objective thinking how does an a radical greenie think an animal dies in wildlife? I guarantee you most of them has never thought about it. Because to them, they see a, a wild fox or a wild bobcat or a coyote or a mink the same as they see their house cat or their house dog or a horse in a pasture. You know, in wildlife, there's no hospitals. If they get sick, they get sick. If they get broke, they get broke. 
when they get old, they do not have an animal's old folks home that takes care of them. The way animals die is extreme brutality, either through disease or something else is tearing them open and eating them or killing them while they're alive and while they're trying to defend themselves. That is reality. That's just the way nature is. Right, wrong, or otherwise, that's how animals die. Very few animals just die of old age in the nature because you have disease, you have them getting hurt, and if they get hurt, they, they can't defend themselves and they can't hunt. They starve to death. I mean, doesn't that sound like just a fun way to go? And are, are they're, they're going about hunting and they come across a bigger animal or, or a bigger prey animal, and all of a sudden they're pinned to the ground, and while they're alive, they have teeth and claws ripping chunks of meat out of them and along with their organs all over the ground. You can go online and look at what coyotes do to sheep. It's the same no matter what animal it is. It's just the way it is and it's hard for a human to accept that. Even though you see it on National Geographic and stuff like that, you don't think that happens to the cute little bunny that runs around in your front yard. Till the, the hawk comes down and rips it to shreds. If you don't see it, you just have a hard time believing it. So that's what I asked him, and I could tell he didn't come back. He didn't respond. I didn't defriend him. I'm going to, but I didn't defriend him because I wanted to see what he was going to say. Now, when that logic hit emotion, he just kind of went away. And it, it And I have to admit, it's fun sometimes to just pester them, just to show them how ignorant they are, but most time that'll always devolve into being in the, the mud with them. And so when, if I see it going that way, I just get out of it. Now, I'm gonna, I'm gonna read something. Now, since we got these chickens, there is a thing, and if you're a guy, you may not know about this, but I guarantee your wife does. It's called Pinterest. Pinterest is a website, pinterest.com. Um, it is a brilliant marketing tool for advertisers because you build this board was what they call it and everything that you like you put on your board and then they sell that to advertisements and our advertisers can go to your board and see exactly what you like because you've told them exactly what you like between clothes and gardens and, and cars and whatever it is you can do a board on anything they can come back but that's what this website is the cool thing about the site besides it being used for advertising against you is you can really see some very creative things like we just got these chickens and uh, we bought this uh, chicken coop that you're supposed to be able to roll around and the chickens can always get fresh grass and fresh bugs and they're happier and the eggs are better and yada 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 okay so we got this chicken coop now the reality of the chicken coop and the in the marketing of the chicken coop is a little bit different it is a beautiful chicken coop because my wife wanted something that's going to look good in the yard so it's a beautiful chicken coop it's made out of wood it's got tin roof it's got boxes on it it's got a screen on the bottom uh, I think there's a picture of it on my Facebook page a while back and you can see this thing very well made and it probably weighs four or five hundred pounds all together and the way that you move it, the way I watched this guy move it off the trailer was a truck cart. I've got a truck cart because I'm in the, the convention business. So you put the truck cart under one side and you slowly move this thing forward and your chickens are more happy because they're, quote, free range now and they get fresh food every day plus what you're feeding them. Sounds great. 
problem is chickens are not that smart and they don't know that they got to move with a chicken pen sometimes and then if you when you put it on the truck cart it raises up and you got gaps underneath it and the chickens see a way to get out to get more fresh grass so they bolt out of there now you got a 300 pound redneck trying to run around and catch chickens so I could see that that was not the best thing so I go to Pinterest and I'm looking up different ways and how different people have done chicken coops and portable chicken tractors to still move around because I want the chickens to get under my fruit trees and stuff like that and eat bugs and all that good stuff. So I'm looking on there and I come across this article and this is what I think a lot of guys have a lot of trouble with when they're talking to antis because in your mind guys as a trapper someone that's out in wildlife you can't really believe that these people are being real but they are dead serious about what they believe now this is in uh, leisure food and drink examiner.com backyard chickens do not produce cruelty free eggs and they have a photo of a dumpster from somewhere that's got uh, chickens in a dumpster. Now how they died, I don't know. I don't know where they come from. I don't know anything about it, but it's dead and dying male chickens in dumpster behind a hatchery. They give the hatchery's name and then they go into the trend is backyard chickens. Hey, and I'm part of that trend, I guess. I want really good eggs and I want a dirt manufacturing factory from the chickens. Many people believe that keeping their own chickens is a good alternative to the harsh treatment associated with far factory farmed eggs. But eggs from backyard chickens are far from cruelty free. Recently, a group of six animal protection organizations, including Farm Sanctuary and United Poultry Concerns, issued a statement about the problems of keeping backyard chickens. Chicken hatcheries are an avon equivalent to puppy mills. And it goes into why that's bad. Men's and male chickens are killed immediately at hatchers, at hatcheries, because people want hens to get eggs and they don't want the noise and having to fight with the roosters. Shipping baby chickens is cruel. And I, and I remember when we shipped baby chickens, my little brother, they came, they were happy, they were healthy and whatever. But because you put a chicken in a box and you overnight ship it, that's cruelty. Unwanted chickens are being killed. And what they're saying is, is after three years, chickens start losing their, their egg laying abilities and people eat them. So, you know, to a rational person, okay, I've got these chickens. I give them a great life. We work together to meet our goals, which theirs is to eat and lay eggs. Mine is to get the eggs and get them to make compost after three years of this great life then I get to have chicken noodle soup with these chickens and then I bring in more chickens that have a great life and we repeat this process over and over again now to a rational person those three years of that chickens life is going to be way longer than if you turned him loose where a coon rips it apart in three days now a rational person can see that or a hawk comes down and rips its head off that's a lot better when I go out there and, I, and I've got my chicken coop and my pen set up and they got food and water and all the time and I'm getting them all kind of greens and bugs and, and everything else that I'm doing, I've got very, very, very happy chickens. 
and they give me very happy eggs. So we're, we're right on mark there. And then it goes on and on and on through this. But, and it says, uh, but their main thing is you shouldn't be eating anything to do with an animal. So their main premise is going egg free. But this is the part of this, guys, that I want you to get. When you go to the comments of this, if you look this up to self, you will be dumbfounded at how people really view this, this uh, subject like this or anything like that. One guy's talking how people that have happy chickens in their backyard, it's a disturbing trend. And it's about people that are greenies fail to see the inconsistency in caring about the earth while continuing to exploit beings, talking about the chickens. People are saying thanks for sharing this information. I didn't know that it was bad, yada, yada, yada. You're doing a great service to under people to understand the truth. Now, then one person gets in here and says, I raise hens generally range-free in my yard, providing them a comfortable housing, warmth all winter. My, my kids lavish them with attention. I hatch them myself, and we deal with them as members of the family from the day they're born. Now, that lady got dogpiled by everybody on here. And then people are trying to find something to get this lady to show that she is a psychopath. What do you do with the male chicks after they hatch? Do you keep them or do you just kill them? It says the roosters run free. I don't interact with, they don't interact with the hens because they're not trying to get uh, more chickens. Not only that, but they are really, really delicious. This is the lady that raises the chickens. And then it goes into all this stuff. Well, just because they're delicious doesn't mean that you should be doing it and you're exploiting life and and it's just, it goes on and on. I'm not going to read all these things. But if you go to this thing, and like I said, I'm going to go back to the top. So you can, I want you to go look at these comments. And there's no reason to get in there and comment with them back because you're dealing with absolute radical extremists, but it's backyard chickens do not produce cruelty-free eggs, examiner.com. The reason I'm telling you all that is when you're dealing with these guys, because if you start going to conventions, every now and then they show up. Trappers have been very good about just ignoring them, which drives them nuts, because that's what they want is attention. There'll be 10 of them there with a camera crew from three different, trying to get a trapper laying one of them out or something like that, or I don't know what they're looking for. And when you deal with them online, just ignore them. Because if you want to know what they don't want is to be irrelevant. If you make them irrelevant, they're no longer, the, the radical has no more power. So just because you come across a vegan, which is from these comments, that's what most of them are, that's a religion to these people. You know, they never take into account that they eat more vegetables than anybody else, which also means that there's more chemicals used that kills more animals than the chicken ever will. So they're personally responsible for a lot of death, even though they don't want to, to make it up. You can also go into with them why most vegans and most vegetarians are on psychopathic drugs because their brains don't work right because they do not get the vitamins and minerals they need that you cannot get from plants. That is a scientific fact. That's not coming from Clint. Most vegans are on some type of 
Prozac or something like that to try to keep them calm. And they have a lot of health issues even though they talk about being healthy. Another thing about vegans that, that makes this blows me away when you when you talk to one of them and they talk about how using they want to have organic this that and the other and they want to have farms that don't use chemicals and this that and the other and they act like there's death free farms because if a groundhog's eating somebody's tomato plant something's going to happen to that groundhog I promise you on a commercial farm so there's going to be death at every farm that's just nature there's no way to get around it the second thing is if you don't use a petroleum based fertilizer and, and herbicide to get the plants you're going to have to go to organic fertilizers which is always boil down to one or two things which is bone meal hello and blood meal hello plants even are meat eaters whether vegans and vegetarians want to admit it because you got petroleum or you got animal parts and that's what feeds animals I mean that's what feeds the plants so no matter how far you go into all this nonsense with them you're never going to win them over because it's an it's 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 a religion with these guys. So if they show up on your Facebook page, just defriend them. If you meet them somewhere and they start talking with you, just ignore them. You know this is what we need to be doing with our federal government. Just make them irrelevant. The same thing in PETA and Humane Society. They're kind of doing that for us anyway. They're so radical. They're so far over the top. Even anybody that don't know anything about the issues can look at what some of these organizations are doing and know that they're nutty as banana bread. So if you come across some guys, don't try to convert them. You're not going to convert these people. If you come across somebody that doesn't really know, now you can build an ally with them. You know, you can really, you know, talk about some of the stuff about the wildlife management part and some of the deer studies and turkey studies and, and different things like that. You can have a conversation with people like that and you can get somewhere. You got a 50-50 shot. If you're talking to a radical environmentalist, you're not going to have a shot because he does not want to hear anything that goes against his religion. So that's kind of the point. And as trappers, we have got to understand that. Just make them irrelevant because they are. You may think that there's more of them than there is us. And there may be on a number, but if you look at the trends, people are being forced to go back to growing stuff in their yard because of cost. They're being forced to getting chickens in their backyard because they can't afford chickens. They're being forced by the reality of our government that they need to be a little more self-reliant. And someone that starts becoming more self-reliant is going to start understanding nature in a little bit better way where they're not going to be enemies of the trapper. Because anybody that thinks that going out and digging oil and building a factory and, and avoiding land and having all that pollution to make a coat where no animal is harmed, which is a lie, or you can harvest animals and give them a very good life and just give them one bad day makes perfect sense once someone starts understanding wildlife a little bit when people realize that chickens actually come are you know there's a living being and not in cellophane well then they're going to start asking questions 
in the way the internet works, people are seeing more and more stuff on, on big agricultural, like Tyson, the way they do chicken and, and uh, cows. And, if, if, and, and, and I shouldn't say this, but you owe it to yourself. Everybody listen to me right now. Write this down. Food Inc. is a documentary. You should watch it. You should watch it with your kids and your wife. Now, I told Jeff Dunlap about it. Next thing I knew, he sent me a text where he bought some free-range eggs. It is pretty spooky. But as information like that goes out, people start looking at the world we live in in a lot different ways. The more people you get to look at a documentary like that, and you see how cows are treated, that go to these, these big um, feedlots, and you see how chickens are treated, and you see how the workers of these places are treated, and you start going, there's gotta be a better way. Well, people that raise their own food and harvest animals in a very natural way like we do, starts becoming a lot more sane. And the information is gonna keep flowing out there. And as it keeps flowing out there, guys, it's gonna be easier for us to be able to explain what we do because we're not dealing with that much of an ignorant population as we are today. And it's even better today than it was 10 years ago. Look at the power environmentalists like PETA and Humane Society had 10 years ago. They've lost most of it because they're nutbags and they're, and they're nothing but for-profit money grabbers from soccer moms that want to feel good. And soccer moms are starting to figure that out. That's one of the good things about the internet. So let's talk, it's, we're going to stop talking about something that's easy to get on, for me anyway, to start talking about just how insanely ludicrous these people are. And let's get on to something that's more important. How do we catch a mink? Now, I've taken instruction from Johnny Thorpe on mink trapping. I've been out with Red O'Hearn, and he showed me how he minks traps. I've been out with Red Edgman and some other older gentlemen here in Tennessee that, that you know, back in the 80s, they were catching 60 and 80 mink, which on some of the day's numbers, that may not be a lot, but for Tennessee, it's a lot. You stick them in somewhere like... Uh, Minnesota or Iowa or Wisconsin where you've got a lot of mink they would be in the hundreds because they had to be very good because we don't have a big mink population so I've kind of learned and another one that, that I was amazed at that I'm going to talk about is Matt Jones the way that he traps mink was uh, very different than I was expecting so mink you know minks a little bitty animal everybody thinks of it you know in forms of a pocket you dig a pocket in the side of the bank and a lot of guys do this and the reason they do, I think the pocket has become so popular for mink in areas that you have a lot of mink, they're very productive just because it's like any other animal. If you've got more animals coming down a creek, even if two or three aren't interested, that one is, so it gives you the illusion of being very successful. So you dig a pocket in the bank, and this is one thing that a lot of the old timers did here that I learned from Tennessee, and Red, Red O'Hearn does a lot, I've talked to Gerald Smith about it. You know, he's caught like 700-something mink in a year. These are pocket guys. They've got, they're in areas that got a lot of mink, and they perfected the pocket to the point where it's very, very hard for a mink to get around it. And one thing I've noticed about guys that use pockets on mink is they're very small diameter pockets. 
the pockets are only about as wide as the trap or a little bit narrower than the trap. And if you get Red O'Hearn's Mink Book, which I would really recommend, it's a cool book, he explains this where he's got a shovel that's actually bent to make the perfect size pocket. He sells them at conventions for a one and a half trap. He digs this pocket in, he sets his trap inside the pocket a little bit with the jaws not open and then he sets the jaw up against the loose wall. So the loose jaw is going against the uh, opposite side of the thing. So basically the pan, i.e. like a big pan, just saying, is in the middle of this thing and it's almost as big as anywhere they can step so one foot or the other is going to end up on that pocket. You can also catch muskrats and you will catch some coon doing it that way but you, you'll have some coon that won't get caught. Different story, different show. But they're using these pockets. They're smaller in diameter. They're uh, right at water's level. They let the water go in over the trap. And they're either fitting the pocket to barely fit where the jaws of the trap go in, or they're making the pocket smaller so they can open the jaw. And one jaw is kind of cocked up in the, the air, as you would say, but the landing surface for the animal is only on the pan. So if you know, and that that's what a lot of them do. Now, when I went with uh, me and Matt, were shooting. I think it was Coyote Chaos. We still set some mink and uh, otter traps and beaver traps, stuff like that. But I think that's because I've only been trapping with him once, so that would have been it. Now, Matt's idea was one of the first times that I saw trapping animals like that with a true blind set. And, the, and when I mean true blind set, he would go next to where there was ponds and levees and beaver dams and stuff like that. And what he was doing is he would look for these very small trails that are, you know, they go in and out of the water kind of, but you know, they, they may be 20 feet in between going in and out of the water. And you can see they're small. They're only like three inches wide, two inches wide. They're not really wore down. You can see stuff goes through there. Looks a lot like squirrel trails, really. And what he was doing is he was putting a number 11 on a small drag and he was just setting that in the grass trails and kind of covering them up. And he would put two or three of them in a trail very fast. Everything Matt does is very fast, but it was very fast. It was very simple and it was very effective. And I asked him how come he just didn't stick a 110 in there. And he told me that he's tried it and he's caught some mink that way, but it's just not as effective as the foothold in the blind set because the mink can see the triggers and he can avoid the triggers on a lot of 110s and 160s and 5x5s and stuff like that. So, you know, Matt was the first one that showed me a blind set on an animal like that using a foothold trap. I've, I've seen guys use it back where um, you know they, they've got a trail that comes off the bank and hits the water and they put the, the, the trap right there and I've done a lot of that and I've caught mink doing that. And I'm not a big mink, mink trapper by any means so please don't don't misconstrue this. But when I go out and I get a, a you know a, big hot desire to go catch some mink I can definitely catch some mink and one of the biggest things that I've learned was emulate Matt 
you find these trails and you blind set them with footholds. My personality is one trap's good, two traps better, so I'm always hooking two together just to give me more surface area with pans right there. But I don't have to do that now because I can turn down a number three long spring on the pan tension where it can barely hold itself open and now I've got a pan that's it's like four number 11 pans and it's more of a killer trap. Because most of the mink I've caught in a three or four are just dead. So it's like a kill trap. You don't have to worry about water depth and stuff like that because it, it just it's a body grip trap that fires from the ground. And you know a lot of that goes back to when I was you know really getting into the footholds on otter when I started seeing the advantages of using footholds on otter over body grip traps because of high pressure I was using what I learned in mink over to the otter and an otter is basically just a great big mink so it worked very well so what I've learned is to set these smaller trails that are up on the bank you'll see a lot of them on bridge abutments where you'll have vegetation that'll be growing right up against a bridge abutment. I've got some video I'll be putting out on YouTube um, where some guys came down and uh, we're going to show some of these trails with mink tracks. You'll see how easy it would be to put a trap in these things and you don't have to put it in the water because water a lot of times can be your enemy when you're trapping. I don't care what the books say. It's going to rain. You can tell I've got a, a fetish or a phobia, whatever you want to talk about it, about rain because it screws up your trap line when you're around water. If you put your trap at the base of those trails and it's perfect water level and the water never raises or drops, you're good to go. You're golden. But at the same time, if, it, if the water comes up four or five inches overnight because you get a big flush of rain, you're out of business. But you can move that trap, guys, up that trail where it's a foot out of the water, catch the same mink, and take that, that one little bitty thing that's not little bitty, which is the water fluctuations, completely off the board. Take it off the board. You don't want to play there. You don't want to be there unless you absolutely have to be there. Now, when I went and took instruction from Johnny, this became even more clear. Because when I went up to Johnny's, I didn't care if we sat on the front porch, drank coffee, and talked about all the experiences he had in trapping. I would have been totally fine with that. But we went out and we did land trapping and raccoon trapping and beaver and otter trapping. He was showing me all his places and I'm, I'm just sucking that stuff up like a sponge. And then I paid him, I think, for four days or something like that. And on the third day... Didn't really know what we were going to do. And I'm sitting there with Johnny Thorpe, for goodness sake. So he's like, well, what do you want to do today? I said, well, you know, I don't really mink trap that much. But since you're Johnny, since we're in the New York mountains, I want to know how the master does it. So we went out and we spent all day mink trapping. Back in the day when Johnny was really racking up mink, he set a lot in the water. But this is where you got to use your brain and think about it of why he was doing it. Very few guys knew how to catch mink at that time in the water. Most of Johnny's sets were suicide sets or, or bridge abutment sets or whatever you want to call them. If there was shallow water up next to a solid structure of a culvert or a bridge abutment, he would basically just put in his number 11. He had 
three or four foot of chain and then some type of weight or drag on the end of it so he could set the trap, set it right up against the wall, loose jaws up against the wall because they're going to hug that, that, that structure, drop his drag, he'd put out four or five or six under these bridges and he didn't have any competition. And then he wrote a book about it and he called it Suicide Set and, and within two seasons you couldn't find a bridge that didn't have traps under it the opening day because everybody set them. So Johnny started going way above them and figuring out how to reproduce that structure above them to cut his competition off that he helped create. So he would go up and he would spend all summer building these little rock structures right on the edge of the water to give him the same part or the same look and the same structure of a bridge abutment because up in New York mountains it's like it is here there's rock everywhere so he would go out in the summer and he would build his locations before season came and he knew where they are and then he would go up and he would set his traps and they would always be up and downstream of the culvert he's in national uh, national ground so permission wasn't really an issue so he'd get out he'd go up say 50 feet or 100 feet or whatever right around the bend where no one else would see it he'd have his little structure in he would do the same exact thing he'd drop his number 11 with his drag or his weight put it up against the structure where he made a solid wall on the creek bank and he was catching well then people started catching on to that and then Johnny kinda used the culvert and his old sets that would stay there for years to know where the trappers were he was using those as decoys basically then he got to where he was really understanding the mink on a lot higher scale is what it seemed like and over the years flushes of water screwed up his system because you know you don't want to have a trap three inches under the water because you're going to miss some mink you know what he's trying for when he was showing me his suicide sets is he would want to have the water just over the jaws and he would build it up a little bit if he needed to. He'd take it down a little bit if he needed to on the bottom to get this perfect height. But you get you get a flush of rain and all of a sudden you're out of business for four days. What's well, four days you've missed completely on your mink line if you totally rely on a system like that? Well, what amazed me is he started off his instruction with a suicide set. Then he then he showed me all these all these structures that he's built. And they weren't elaborated structures, but it was just giving him structure for the mink to go through that he was using. He was showing me people's trap wire and stuff where people found these and started using them. All in the water. But then he would go up another 30 or 40 feet and he would have his new sets because he's always trying to stay ahead of his competition. And very few of his new sets were ever in the water. Let me say that one more time for you guys that want to understand mink and catch more mink. Now, if you go behind Johnny Thorpe, very few sets of his are in the water. A mink is a dry land animal that goes to the water. It's not, a, it's not like a muskrat. So, if you can follow this system, if you can, if you can mis, uh, mentally visualize a creek bank with me, You've got the water level and you'll have rocks and grass and stuff like that. What he's looking for is a structure on the bank and he wants it to be a foot or two above the bank. It could be a tree. It could be just where water has cut a bank out, you know, down the road, which most creeks have. So you'll have 
kind of like a little beach area and then you'll have a straight up and down where the waters cut it and you've got a solid wall there. And then what Johnny does is he treats that new structure that's completely out of the water like a bridge abutment that's in the water because the mink will run it just like they will when they're getting forced down into the water at the bridge abutment. It's a very fast system. He's still got his number 11, he's got his four foot of chain, he's got his drags. Sometimes he'll dig a little pocket, sometimes he'll put in a piece of muskrat or catfish or eel. Sometimes it's a blind set. A lot of times you'll have a tree that gets really close to the water and you can see a flat spot right there next to it and there's a lot of stuff going on which I'm going to go into the locations a little bit but you'll have this tree an oak tree or a spruce tree or something and you know how you'll see where the roots come out on the bottom of the tree what he does is he'll dig a small pocket number 11 trap uh, uh, dragon chain and he's always using uh, buckwheat holes because where he's at in the spruce forest up there in New York, his stuff blends in amazingly. So he's got his, he just scoops it out with his hand, digs if he has to, puts in his trap, puts some buckwheat holes on top of it, and he's good to go. The beauty of Johnny Thorpe's system now is he's not out of business as much as he's in business. Everybody that's copied what he did 50 years ago is out of business every time it rains. They're still doing the same thing 50 years from 50 years ago. They're still having good catches in great weather and crappy catches when it's not good weather. Johnny's having good catches and he don't care what the weather is. Another thing about setting high and dry is when you start getting shelf ice you don't have to worry about your traps getting froze in because the buckwheat holes repel water. It's a very natural type thing. You could probably use peat moss just as well as long as you weren't in a very high windy type area. Put a few leaves on there, you're good to go. He wants very little pan tension and he wants to have that as close to the structure as he can. And that's part of the reason, guys, I'm always talking about big pans. Big pans allow you on cats and mink and stuff that wants to go close to structure uh, gray fox it allows you because of that bigger pan that when you set your jaw up against that structure the pan almost goes out to the jaw you don't have that empty space in between those jaws that's the reason I'm such a big advocate of having bigger pans on the traps because I don't have to guide down or block as much and I've got a bigger kill area but it's in the right place and it's hard to do that with a standard trap pan that's on a trap. So he sets that up against the structure. Now, the, the one of the biggest lessons that I learned from Johnny is we will go up to a creek and he would go, and if you've ever taken classes from me, this will sound very familiar, catch me a mink. Or mostly with me, it's catch me a cow. And he wants to see where you're going to put the trap. And he always does it where there's not a culvert, there's not a bridge, and it's just a creek. So I'm looking around and I'm trying to go, well, a mink could come through here, he could come through here, he could go over there, yada, yada, yada. 
and Johnny's kind of just, you know, looking around, kind of half smiling, eyes twinkling. And he goes, this is a terrible place to catch a mink. Well, let's walk up here 30 yards and we'll see why that place is so much better. And what he told me, and if you're going to get in the mink, you and this is the same as otter. It's the same exact with otter. When you have those creeks that are sh have shallows in them and rocks and the water's kind of moving good and there's no structure and it's just rolling through there and the banks are bare and there's no curves, there's no banks, there's no anything, animals do not spend time in places like that because there's very little food. Now if you go up or down the creek, most creeks, you'll hit a bend or you'll hit an area that's got a pool or something like that. That's where the animals hunt. That's where the otter and mink both hunt. So if you, if you walk up from those straight areas on a creek where there's nothing there, up or down from there you'll start hitting structure. You'll, where the bend goes into the bank you'll start having roots and stuff exposed. Stuff like hiding up in there. Fish and crawfish go up in there. You don't have that on the straight featureless part of the creek. Then you start having trails that are on the high side and the low side. That you, that you now you have options to set up. You have options to get out of the water and you're not trying to force a whole lot of stuff. Mink will spend a lot of time from what Johnny said and I believe him in the areas that they have something to do. They have something to hunt. They have something to look around at and the areas that are flat and featureless they blow through. They go from pool to pool to pool. Deep water to deep water to deep water. And most of the time as a trapper you can set the beginning or the end of that deep water without having to get wet. So that's kind of where the focus was with his. But he would find where you had the bend in the deep water and then he would look above the water level to where you had structure and that's where he would set. And if you're going to go out mink trapping you can scout all this out in the summer. You know, you want to know why Johnny was the man with mink? Because he spent the summer getting ready for mink season. That's what Johnny Thorpe did. When everybody got onto his suicide sets, he spent all summer going out and making sets so he could fly through there, catch his mink, and be gone. If you go out on opening day and you got to start looking around for everywhere that a mink could go, you're not going to get a whole lot of sets out. He knew where every single trap was going to go before the season opened at least for three or four lines so he can run one line for a couple of weeks pull them go set the other one there's not a lot of downtime because he's not spending a lot of time goofing around and scratching his butt and trying to see and figure stuff out and Jeff throwing out the situation he knew because he went out and he scouted this area now what I've learned from me in the Appalachian Mountains of Tennessee is if I go out and I know I'm gonna mink trap I go out there and I spend a little bit of time in the summer when time is not that big of an issue for my trapping. And I can walk up and down these creeks a little bit. Some of them I can get in them, some of them I've got to stay up on the bank. But I can get in, I can look under roots, I can look and look for holes, I can look for places where muskrats used to be and there's old dens. I can really get a lay of the land on, okay, if this is a really sharp bend, is the mink just going to cut across? And if it is, then I go over and start looking for trails, and sure enough, there's trails. If I go under a culvert, how is the mink going to come down to that culvert and I can keep my trap out of water for the most part and still be catching mink? I can do all of that type stuff ahead of time. 
I'm not saying that pockets are bad for mink. Gerald Smith has caught 700 mink. That's more mink than I've caught in my lifetime, and he did it in probably four weeks or six weeks or whatever it was he did that in. Tremendous speed. There's also another guy in Minnesota that called more mink than he did that year. He's a guy that makes the TS-85 and a lot of stuff for Tim Caven. So between those two, that's like 1,500 mink using pockets. So I'm not going to say that pockets don't do well. In a lot of areas that a lot of guys are going to be listening to this to, though, you don't have those populations and the numbers of mink to support something like that. So you've got to get the trap exactly where the mink's going to go. Another lesson that I learned from Johnny Thorpe, if it's a good creek, or even Matt Jones for that matter, and when I when I went out with a Red, uh, red Edgeman, which was uh, one of the guys that's been in the FTA before he passed away several years ago, very well known in the FTA, when he would go to lakes and stuff, and that's more of what he said when I was with him, if he, if he found mink sign, nobody that I've ever been with is afraid to set mink traps. You can look at some old Charlie Dobbins videos and stuff like that. You'll see he's not afraid to set mink traps. If you watch Jim Spencer's videos, he's not afraid to, to set mink traps. Now what I'm saying by that is if you come to a creek and you know there's mink there or you think there's mink there, don't be afraid to set six eight ten sets right there because if you got simple sets that are easy to put in and fast to put in especially if you've pre-scouted them most of the time you can put in four or five really good blind sets before someone especially in my area can ever dig a pocket because around here you're not digging pockets you're making cubbies because there's hardly any dirt on the side of the banks a lot of times and it's sugar sand if it is, so it's just going to fall through. So you've got to look at your particular situation. If you're going to be a pocket guy, have systems in place that you could set four or five of them. Don't be afraid to experiment with snares if they're legal where you're at. Don't be afraid to, to start playing around with squirrel traps, box traps, catching mink. I've caught several mink in squirrel traps on purpose because it's just kind of a fun thing to do. It's really fast to put in. Yeah, I'm not, you know, a coon's not gonna fit in that thing. If you're gonna use cages though, let me tell you something from personal experience, wire them off. Because if you catch, when you catch a mink in there and the, the local dog comes by and this mink has stunk the place up and is bouncing around inside that cage, the dog can't get him out of the cage. The dog takes the cage with him. So wire them off if you're going to start playing around with cages. You've got tube traps uh, that, that a lot of people have become masters with. You've got guys that's done floats. You've got guys that's caught mink in all different ways. I talked to a gentleman that catches his mink in minnow traps when I, once the ice is on in, I think it was North Dakota. He sets the bottom side of the, the culverts. There's all kind of ways to catch mink. Most of the time, you got to find the way that's in your particular area to be able to do it. So don't try to force what Johnny's doing if you're you know, in Minnesota. Or don't try to force what, what I'm talking about if you're somewhere that's got a totally radically different type of... Because uh, the way that I trap here would be greatly different the way that I trap in Louisiana. Because I'm not dealing with mountain streams. 
you know, I would be a blind setting fool inside of those trails because they're around every crawfish pond and fish pond I've ever been to. That's the way I'd be setting those up. And the water, for the most part around those things, are pretty freaking stable. So you can get away with a lot. But you go down to Louisiana and you try to put in pockets, you're wasting your time. Talk to somebody down there that's tried it. You don't catch mink that way. So you've got to know what's going on in your area. But if you want to catch a lot of mink, guys, go out. Take your kids. Grab, grab a teenager. Do whatever. Put the waders on. Go out and do some scouting. Have a good time looking around and all that type of stuff. And you'll be glad that you did. Because when mink season comes around, you'll know where your stuff's going while your competition is running around, scratching his head, trying to figure out where they're putting their traps. And that, that's a really good feeling when you put your head down at, at night knowing that you've got a good line out because you took the time to set it up to be that way. So hopefully something that we went over today helps you trapping. Go out and do your scouting and have a really good season next year and just have fun while you're doing it. I'll talk to you all next week. Country fried, baptizing gravy Can't wash off what the good Lord made you No matter how far that highway goes An old dirt road to get you home Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to lie you the bullet hole in a stop sign kind Then I'm right there with you Put your drinks up high for my country phone hey. My country phone hey. I'm out here on a thousand acre plot of land And I can't hear him hating on me, I'm a modest man Talking weird, Jimmy Mathis and he got a plan And when he talk, I listen to him, that's a lot of man He said we need to take it back to the root of it I put on for the country, that's the truth of it I'm talking last millennium, we was repping it Before anybody had accepted it We introduced him to the cooler on the tailgate Full of cold natty light, playing satellite A little day while we misbehave, okay Once we figured the game out, we go play a generation of people that love Tupac And hey, we banging it in the boondocks Now put your drink in the air if you ain't scared Them folks been doing that thing, yeah Country fried, baptizing gravy Can't wash off what the good Lord made you No matter how far that highway goes An old dirt road to get you home Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to lie you the bullet hole in a stop sign kind Then I'm right there with you Put your drinks up high for my country folk My country folk to me and Bubba, we've been doing this a long while It sure seems a lot longer than a country mile Hollywood look good, full of fake friends I never thought we could ever be here again Time heals, one fell, one came up Back together, son, we gon' tear this thing up A lot of talkers and I ain't gotta name them They wanna be us, hell, I can't blame them So looky here, cold beer on a tailgate Been doing this for some years, y'all so late Banging outcasts and a little George Strait Hot damn cold Ford, back with Bubba K Country fried, baptizing gravy Can't wash off what the good Lord made you No matter how far that highway goes An old dirt road to get you home Come on. If you see it in the ride when they try to lie you the bullet hole in a stop sign down Then I'm right there with you Put your drinks up high for my country phone hey. My country phone hey. Everything real funny till the money come Now they want some, when they ain't wanted none And that's just how the thing go when you get her done We did it, son, yeah, we did it, son We was drinking Jim Beam by the handle Me and Steven Herndon loading up ammo Bumping good at my real tree camo This white boy really think he Rambo Cut the beat on, I bet his ass jammed, though You don't like it straight to hell, is where you can go 
get right up on the mental. You don't like the program, change the channel. Virgin fried, baptized, and gravy can't wash off what the good Lord made you. No matter how far that highway goes, an old dirt road to get you home. Come on. If you see it in the eye when they try to lie, you the bullet hole in a stop sign. Now that I'm right there with you, put your drinks up high for my country folks.